Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is episode number 78 of the Tartan Talks podcast, our monthly conversation with an American Society of Golf Course Architects member. Joining us is Greg Muirhead. Greg is the Senior Vice President of Reese Jones, Inc. And get this, Greg has been with the firm now for nearly 40 years. On the podcast, we're going to be talking about master plans, what it takes to take a master plan from a concept to execution, the process of modernizing some of these golf courses that were built in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Of course, the balance between interesting architecture and providing modern golfers the green speeds they are seeking. And then we're going to get into the human side of golf course architecture, including and what it takes to stay with the same company for nearly 40 years. But before we get going with Greg, We'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad that they were on board with us this year again for the Tartan Talks podcast. They'll be on board with us in 2023. We're super appreciative of their support, and we're super appreciative that Greg was able to take so much time to join us for this podcast. Well, Greg, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited for this conversation. Like the majority of the guests we have on Tartan Talks, the bulk of your recent work has been preparing master plans and executing renovations. Uh, how important is it for a facility considering a renovation to have a solid master plan? And I know, boy, that's really getting into a technical question quick here. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here as well. And we certainly appreciate the, the Tartan Talks that you've been doing for so many years and kind of promoting architecture and what we all do. I think specific to your question, I've come to realize and learn over the years that Having a master plan, I think, is essential for, for any golf course, whether it's a private club or a public course or a resort course. I almost uh, don't understand how you can really operate efficiently or responsibly, even if you don't have this master plan that really kind of um, kind of directs the future vision of your facility and helps you plan for expenses that are on the horizon. I mean, Obviously, the course is constructed of components that wear out, and I think if you're not aware of how soon that's going to happen and what the magnitude of the cost is going to be, um, it can be shocking, and it, it can lead to a lot of the deterioration of the of the facility itself. You know, our our process when we do it is pretty comprehensive. Um, it really is is it, the first thing we really do is evaluate the facility just from an infrastructure perspective and understand um, what the age of the component is, the condition, um, how things were originally built. But the other big part of it is really um, dealing with the facility and the users of the facility to try to glean as much information as we can about the problems we're ha that they are having, whether it be playability-wise or maintenance-wise, uh, and then kind of put all that together, combine those those parts of it into a, an overall plan that um, – makes recommendations for the future uh, and really helps the facility, you know, learn how to, how to prepare. And I think a lot of times too, one of the, some of the other benefits of it, I think a big one, especially at a lot of private clubs is really um, it kind of protects the club from future leadership. Uh, you know, when everybody has their own agenda and wants to move the course in one direction or another, if you have a master plan with a defined vision, uh, you know, that everybody's agreed on, it's easier to stay the course. And, and, and that's not to say that the plan shouldn't be revisited every every few years to see if it still represents what the what the 
membership is looking for or the user is looking for. But, you know, I think it just, it really helps. Um, it helps you plan for the future. It helps you also make sure you spend the money in the right sequence and that you do the work logically so that, uh, you know, you don't, you don't put your irrigation system in first and then redo the bunkers a year later. Uh, and if you do need to do the irrigation first, it gives you the opportunity to at least design it in a way that, you know, you'll avoid putting pipe where you think you're going to be putting a bunker in the future. Greg, with how expensive things are these days, how important is it that, to have that plan on paper and not deviate too far from it, given the cost of everything right now? Well, I, again, I think it's, I think it's really important, and I think it's important even for even for facilities that maybe don't have um, work on the short term horizon. They, they're not really even planning anything. It's, I think it's just important for them to understand because we we run into this all the time that um, committees and boards don't necessarily realize that these things are going to wear out, and when they wear out, that they are you know rebuild a green or put in a new irrigation. I mean, irrigation systems now are three three and a half million dollars, so. To not be prepared to pay for that and then have to scramble to figure out how you're going to get the money is really something that could be avoided if you had a master plan. And, and then, you know, that, that just really promotes the whole idea and the concept of capital budgeting and long-term planning for, for finances. And that really helps clubs figure out, you know, where the money's going to come from when they need it. I know every master plan is different. I'm a writer. I'm an editor here. I know what it takes to produce an article, a magazine. But how much time goes into creating a master plan. I mean, I've seen some that are essentially the size of a book. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I think you're right. It does kind of vary uh, depending on the type of facility. And by that, I mean, you know, if you're working at a private club, for example, you're going to have more stakeholders involved in the decision-making process. You, you, you have your board, the general manager, the golf and greens committee or a renovation committee. And then, of course, the, the superintendent, um, the golf staff, as opposed to if you're working for a private owner who is going to be making all those decisions himself with his staff, uh, the superintendent and the and the golf staff. So the amount of work and the time required can vary somewhat depending on the type of facility that it is. But I think in general, it it is um, it's extensive. If if you if you really get into it and dive into the details and do the proper work. Um, there's a lot of time spent on site. We, we kind of have two phases. We have kind of a pre-designed phase and then a, a design phase. And in pre-design, we spend a lot of time on site um, evaluating the course, listening really to the members and the uh, facility owners and the users to, to really understand what the issues are. And we try to understand the demographic of the facility and how that might be changing. You know, are they seeing any trends? Um, with their facility in terms of who, who's using it. We need to understand who we're designing for, and we really have to understand what the goals, the future goals of the facility are. You know, is this a, is this a, a daily fee, you know, pay-to-play opportunity where pace of play is, is perhaps more important and having maybe a little more user-friendly design is more important just uh, for the op- economic operation? Uh, or is it a private club that... Um, you know, may have been built 20 years ago and uh, they want to change the style or they want to change the difficulty of the course one way or the other. Uh, and then once we get into the design phase, there's a, there's a whole nother level of uh, involvement in terms of 
developing all the presentation materials. And, and I think recently that's become more extensive. You know, a lot of people are interested in, in uh, animation and 3D flyovers and graphics, and we do a lot more uh, before and afters with Photoshop renderings. So the level of the presentation quality has increased over the years. So, and then we were involved in a lot of feedback sessions in, in focus groups, town halls. Um, we also like to include a pricing study as part of our design work because I think it's important. You know, every, everybody says, okay, these are all great ideas, but what's, what's it going to cost and how do we figure out what we're going to do when? So uh, we spend a lot of time developing the scope of the priorities, and um, we invite contractors to come in and we present the project to them and ask them to give us some initial budget pricing uh, with the idea then that when the club does implement, there'd be a more formal bid process. And they might even, through the initial pricing study, identify a contractor that they really like that that they want to kind of partner with uh, in the interim period between the initial pricing and really uh, developing a final budget for the work. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Greg. How many master plans have you been involved in creating over your nearly four decade career and do you still paper copies of the ones that you've done on paper somewhere yeah i i would guess maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 uh, maybe not that many maybe not 50 but hmm. um you know we've always had a good blend of kind of new projects and and remodel projects or redesign projects but and i would guess the other designers here um steve weiser and bryce swanson they probably both have similar numbers uh, to that in terms of the the redesign work that we've done and that we're continuing to do. And we're also revisiting those plans. I mean, I may have done a master plan for a course 10 or 15 years ago, but every two or three years they'll call and say, all right, we want to do this phase of work now. So we're we're revisiting and updating them constantly. But uh, we do actually still have a lot of the paper copies of, um, of a lot of our work. Of course, we scan more things now than we, we did 20 years ago which is nice to have the record. But, um, yeah, we do have a lot of the sketches that we've done and, and a lot of the presentation materials and a lot of the initial, uh, you know, master plans. I can't even imagine the materials an office like yours has. Do you ever take time to go through there to look at some of the documents? And what are some of the cool things you've spotted over the years? Well, I guess most of the stuff that we have is aerial photographs maybe like for example beth page you know we have the aerial from 1934 36 i think it was so a lot of the a lot of the projects and um that we've worked on we have a, a aerial photographs we have um maybe original documents from some of the original architects work we have a lot of photographs and and kind of memorabilia things from our tournament courses including the major championships which is kind of cool you know, Reese has always been kind of a book collector, and he's got a pretty extensive collection or library of books. But he's actually been—he's um, kind of been gifting those recently to some of some individuals, and even to some of the clubs that have libraries. Okay, so creating the plan is one thing. What is it like once you have the plan created to, to get it into the execution phase? And I guess there's a big phase between creating the plan and the execution—the whole selling of the thing. So, kind of take us through the process of taking the master plan and getting it proved and going to the part of the project where you're executing it. Yeah, and that that's really become um, a more extensive process, the whole idea of helping the clubs sell it. And that's that's really more specific to clubs as opposed, again, to a, a single owner. 
or, um, you know, a daily fee type facility. But with the clubs, you know, I guess the first big thing is you've really got to invest a lot of time. There's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of Zoom calls. There's a lot of town halls. There's, there's a lot of PowerPoint presentations where you really go through hole by hole and explain what you're going to do. We also participate in a lot of um, monthly communication that clubs have in terms of uh, their website, either giving them written uh, content or videos that they can distribute to the membership. But I, I, so I, I think investing the time is, is one of, certainly one of the big, big things that you have to do. I think the, the communication is, um, is central to everything, and I think it's got to be consistent and it's got to be very transparent. Uh, you know, members are, members really want to understand what's going on and where their money's going and, and what the change is going to be to the course and it's going to impact their experience. So, uh, we do a lot of listening up front. And then when we're trying to sell, we try to communicate what we've heard and how we're responding to it with our presentations. Um, this, this whole process of, of master planning is really heavily dependent on the user input. I mean, they play the course every day, uh, and their their input is really very valuable to to what we're doing in our final recommendations. But um, you know, the other part of it I touched on a little bit with the um, in terms of how we how we move it from through the sales process is really a lot of these graphics and um, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. And when you can when you can put up a video that. Or, a, or even a Photoshop rendering that shows what the course or the whole looks like today and what your what your recommendation is for the future. It it really really helps sell, and uh, I think so many of the clubs are you know even though the clubs are doing pretty well these days in terms of memberships and a lot of them have cash available and and they're able to spend. Um, everybody's still very sensitive and rightly so about um, how the money's going to be spent and making sure that it's spent properly and logically. So, uh, you know, that's a big part of it. And I, I think the other thing that goes with that is the budget. You know, we, we want to, um, we want to make sure that part of that sales process, we're giving them realistic numbers. We've, we've always had a philosophy that it's best to tell them the real story, even if it might not be appealing in terms of finances, uh, as opposed to kind of going in and lowballing it and trying to get the job and then, and then, having surprises later on. And I think we've always been very effective um, in doing that, and it's served us and our clients pretty well. So I think part of that sales experience is actually making sure that you give them the real budget numbers. Greg, we're reaching this interesting time now where a lot of the courses that were opened in the late 90s and early 2000s are ending uh, the first life cycle and a lot of their infrastructure how much has golf changed in those last 20 to 25 years? And what has it been like to get the opportunity to, to renovate some of the courses that you designed during that time period? Yeah, that part of it is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I go back to the, to the mid eighties when I first got involved in the, in the business. And um, I'd say things have changed a lot, both in terms of, of golfers and their expectations, as well as, um, physical, you know, course infrastructure changes. Um, I think in terms of golf, obviously we're all, we're all aware of how technology and improved equipment has affected architecture and, and the design of golf courses and how we've tried to respond to that. Um, but I think 
it's kind of the player demographic is kind of emerging as a bigger issue in my mind as well. I think that, you know, historically the, the people that have played golf and supported the game over the years, the, the core golfers, they're aging now and they're, they're playing a different game. And I think the courses, um, you know, those are people that we want to retain as members and players. And so we need to tweak the courses to make sure that um, we're providing an experience for them that's that's still fun and manageable uh, so that they do keep playing. And I think at the same time, we've got more and more new golfers coming into the game, uh, some of them, you know, with the with the bounce from COVID. But I think we need to do a better job of making the facilities more welcoming and enjoyable for them as well so that we can retain them. I, I think, you know, when Tiger came on the scene, he brought us a lot of new golfers and, and the industry as a whole probably didn't do as good a job as we should have been to try to keep those players. And we lost a lot of them, but now I think we have another, another opportunity to do that. Um, probably the biggest change I think, and what I hear from superintendents and clubs that I go to is just player expectations in general. I think they're much more demanding especially in a private club setting, probably than they ever have been in the fa- in the past. And I think that relates specifically to conditioning, um, also to architecture, but I hear it more about conditioning just in terms of um, ultra-fast green speeds and bunkers that have to be consistent and throughout the course and in perfect condition. Um, and all of that you know, comes at a toll and at a, at a price. But I think that's one thing that's really changed a lot. And I think another, a lot of our clients and the people we work with at these at these facilities, they're more architecturally aware and, and interested um, in terms of you know specifically if their if their course has some historic significance to it or might have been done by an architect that a lot of people view as influential at a certain period of of the design evolution. So I think all of those things have changed just in terms of golf itself. And then in terms of the golf course, I mean, you could almost look at every, every specific piece of infrastructure um, and see changes either in, in the technology, um, you know, bunker, well, irrigation's a great one, right? I mean, how much that's changed in the last 20 years and continue to change in terms of conserving water and being more efficient with the use of water, Bunkers are probably the biggest um, biggest change in terms of well all all aspects really their placement the size the construction method how they're maintained new grasses new and improved turf grasses have made a big difference in fact some projects um, you know renovation projects are initiated or triggered by the need to regrass the golf course practice facilities. Another big thing, 15 years ago, the emphasis on practice was not nearly what it is today. So, you know, a lot of our projects were trying to figure out how we can how we can fit in a, a, um, a desirable short game area or an expanded range within generally a limited footprint a lot of the time and, and do that safely. You know, there's a lot of changes just throughout the game. That'll probably continue moving forward as, as uh, the game continues to evolve. In short, everything's changed. Boy, that's quite quite a list. Yeah. And, and we I recently, think so. <laughs> and we recently received a news news release here about a, a project that you were involved with in the early two thousands that you got to go back and work on recently. Old Chatham 
golf club in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, what type of opportunity was that like to go back there and work again? And I guess that's a course where you talk about new grasses and other things that you did are an example of how the game's changed in the last 20 years. Yeah, that's that's probably a great example to cite and talk about a little bit. Old, Old Chatham was a, a new golf course that we built twenty probably twenty years ago in Durham, North Carolina. It's golf only. There's no there's no residential component to it. Um, we've been fortunate over the years to to get a fair share of those projects, and um, they are different from from other projects, but. Uh, Old Chatham is probably on about 400 acres of beautiful kind of rolling uh, sandhill land and um, vegetated. And when we first built the course, the the ownership group was interested in in really creating kind of a user friendly experience. Uh, and by that I mean, you know, wider fairways, uh, not as many fairway bunkers, not deep bunkers, uh, greens that were fairly open in terms of accessibility and uh, didn't have severe contours to them. A lot of the, a lot of the people who joined the club were members of other courses in the area that, that they felt maybe were, were too hard. Um, So they, they kind of wanted a different type of experience at at old Chatham. And then through the years, uh, the membership kind of evolved and changed a little bit. And um, they were more interested then and now in a more challenging Experience. They want to retain the playability for the average player, but they were also attracting um, to the area newer golfers that wanted to join a club, and they wanted a little more challenging experience. So over the last 20 years, we've been in and out um, several times working on the bunkers. Um, we've added some contours, several of the greens. Uh, this most recent renovation, we actually changed the 16th hole to make it more of a kind of a strategic we added a pond and we relocated the bunkering so that now there's a lot more risk reward opportunity and kind of strategy off the tee than there was before and and they've hosted some usga events and probably will do more of that in the future but as you said that was really triggered by a need or a desire to regress the golf course they've gone to zoysia fairways uh and and zoysia tees uh, so it was kind of like, all right, if you're going to close the golf course to regrass it, what else could we really do to improve the character and the quality of the course, kind of the strategy of it? Uh, we, we added a lot of fairway bunkers, not a lot, but we added, selectively added some fairway bunkers, uh, to kind of increase the, the shot option and the shot value, uh, specifically on par fives. And uh, it's, we reopened in the end of October, and it's been very well received so far. So we're, we're excited about that. And it's just been a great place to be associated with over the years. It's, it's kind of a unique place in, in that the, the director of golf and the superintendent have been there for all 20 years since we opened, um, so which is you don't see that much anymore. And uh, it's a great membership, and, and everyone down there has done a great job. Yeah, I was really fortunate. A few years ago, I had a chance to play Old Chatham and, and spend some time with Brian Powell, the director of golf course maintenance there. How has that continuity helped you in your work, just dealing with the same people? And you said that that's really rare. It, it is rare, and it's really um, mm-hmm. we really value it because you know we know that um, those guys know the whole history. They know how it was built. Um, there's a sometimes you go into a facility, and you know the the continuity is not is not there perhaps like it is at old Chatham. So a lot of the details get lost about how things were done in the past 
which can be helpful when you're doing that infrastructure analysis to really understand how things were done in the past. It's just nice to kind of, and, and there's such those two in particular, John, John Marino and Brian Powell are such nice people to deal with that, you know, it's kind of about relationships um, that you build in this business. And it's nice to go back to a place where um, you know the people and they're good people and everyone's got the same vision for what we're trying to create. There's no no real egos involved, and it's like, what's the best thing we can do for this membership? A few minutes ago, you talked about just how player expectations for conditioning have changed a lot in the last 20 to 25 years. I feel like I'm asking everybody on the podcast now this following question, but how challenging is it to design and renovate greens to meet today's green speed expectations, and how do you balance that need for speed with uh, playability and interesting architecture? That's a, a great question. I think it's kind of always been a challenge, but I mm-hmm. think maybe the challenge has expanded um, even more now so that because I feel like we have maybe a greater diversity of player skill levels than we've ever had before with um, you know an aging core and new people coming in and then a lot of younger, better players. Uh, and ev- all of them kind of have different different ideas of what they want or what they enjoy playing. So I think, unfortunately, there's a, there's too much of an emphasis on fast green speed, especially at, um, at everyday clubs that just, just don't need them. Uh, there's no reason that, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a 15.5 index and I don't need fast greens. You know, I, I want to have some speed, but I don't need greens at 13, 13 and a half every day. The challenge is how much contour do you put in a green, uh, especially when you know that when your work is done and you leave, you're not going to be able to control uh, how the green chairman or the superintendent, you know, or whoever's dictating green speed, how they're going to, how how fast they're going to make the green. So I guess over the years, I've, I and, and even today, I've probably... I've erred more on the conservative side in terms of contouring um, and speed. And I feel like sometimes, you know, what I've learned from the tournament experience we have is that the subtle greens um, are harder for better players, I think. Um, And and with subtle contouring, you're not going to have necessarily as much speed. But um, I think they're harder to read and more challenging as well. So I think we also consider a lot, you know, in terms of greens and green speeds, we it goes back too to what kind of a shot they're hitting into the green and how it will hold. We we use a lot of our internal contouring to kind of create greens within a green, so that if you if your approach shot is accurate and you hit the area where the pin is located that day, that portion of the green, you're going to have a fairly makeable putt. Uh, whereas if your approach shot is not so accurate, you're going to have to negotiate some contour um, in order to to uh, get your two putt. Okay, we're going to get back up here and get a little bit away from the uh, technical side of golf course architecture and now get into the human side. Greg, what about golf and golf courses attracted you to the profession that you've spent four decades in? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was introduced to the game by my dad when when I was a kid, probably eight or nine years old. And um, I, I think probably the first thing was that it was just a place that he and I could, would go together and, and share time. Um, and I've always enjoyed the outdoors. Uh, I think I was initially, um, when I realized that people actually design golf courses, I think I was kind of, um, overwhelmed by the, by the idea first that that that's the way they got built. And then the idea of the scale of the, of the golf course, 
Um, and then you play different golf courses and you realize how different they are. And I think I've, I've always been intrigued by the mental aspect of golf in that, you know, every course is so different and even the same course on a different day can be different. So, you know, the, the, the challenge of that or the excitement of kind of experiencing different courses and seeing, um, especially now, I think the different architecture that's out there, um, and the kind of the neat things that people are doing, whether it fits your game or not, I, I think as an architect, you know, it's a, it's a form of art and it's interesting to see what other people are doing and, and, uh, experience that. So I think it's probably a combination of things. Um, just fascinated by the whole concept of golf course architecture, the outdoor component. And, um, I think the scale and the beauty of it, I mean, it's a very relaxing environment to be in. And I think, that's probably what attracts a lot of people. So you graduate from Ball State University in 1984 and then land a job with Reese Jones. How were you able to do that at that point in your career, land a job <laughs> with one of the most well-known golf course architecture right. firms in the world? Well, I, I guess luck had a lot to do with that. I, I had a, um, when I was um, in high school, I, I figured out this is what I wanted to do. and We were members at Cricket Stick Golf Club in, Indiana, in uh, Carmel just outside Indianapolis. And I met Pete Dye there and I spoke with him about it. Um, and when I was at Ball State, part of my requirement was um, two internships, summer internships. So um, I reached out to Pete and he um, arranged for me to go work at Austin Country Club when he was building that course. That must have been like 82 or 83. Um, and I met Rod Whitman, who was the project um, superintendent for Pete and really the guy responsible for building the golf course. Um, and Rod kind of took me under his wing and taught me a lot. And, uh, I, so I did two internships at Austin country club. And then when I graduated in June of 84, I went to, um, work for Rod again and Pete and, and Denver. So when that job shut down in Denver for the, for the season in the winter, um, I had talked with Pete and Alice about, you know, my future and what they thought the best thing for me to do and what I wanted to do. And it was really, um, Reese was looking for an entry level person to his office cause he was getting busier and, uh, he called Alice and Alice gave me a glowing recommendation apparently. And uh, so that's how I ended up here at Reese's office. And, uh, I guess I got here in November, December of 84. I guess the natural follow-up question is very few people stay with the same company for uh, 39 years. Uh, how have you been able to, to stay with the same firm for such a long time in such a volatile industry? <laughs> right. Um, well, you know, when I got here, I thought I'd be here for like five years and then I'd move, move on, right? Yeah. And either be starting my own firm or something. But, um, you know, after about the first year or the third year, I realized how much I didn't know and um, how complicated this whole industry can really be. Um, in fact, I still learn a lot today. Every project, um, there's something that you learn. And I think especially on the construction side, as much as that whole uh, business and industry has changed, I'm constantly learning a lot from the builders and the superintendents really um, about how you develop these courses and how you maintain them the way people want to maintain. But, uh, so I think that's all part of the growth aspect, you know, how, how does somebody really kind of grow within that company? I think that's a big part of it, but timing was everything. 
pretty much right after I got here, Reese's reputation really started to pick up, and we were being invited to participate in these in these wonderful projects, you know, with um, great sites, um, great locations, uh, clients that really shared our vision, uh, and they had a budget that was reasonable, you know, and realistic to do deliver the kind of course that they wanted. Um, so it was exciting from that perspective, and we were really, really busy. And then, you know, then came all the major championship opportunities, uh, and the, you know, the opportunity to work with people at the um, PGA Tour and the USGA and the PGA of America. Um, so, you know, all of that kind of combined to make me feel like, why would you ever want to leave this? You know, it's, um, where would you go that you'd be doing any better than this? And so there really was no reason to leave. Um, and fortunately, Reese has left, let me, let me stay. Uh, but I think that really that's why, that's why I've stayed and, and Steve and Bryce, I'm sure the same way. And, and, um, Keith before him, Keith Evans, who was Reese's first design employee, uh, who I also learned a lot from, um, we've all been here a long time. I, I think, um, you know, I don't know how we'd compare to other offices, but I, I've got to believe that, um, you know, I've been here, what, 39 years, and Steve's been here over 30, and Bryce has been here probably over 20. So we've probably got as much experience, designer experience, as any other firm around at this point. What type of relationship do the, you, Reese, Steve, and Bryce have? How close do you become to people when you've been working with them uh, for such a long time? Yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, it's interesting. We all kind of have our own projects that we're responsible for, and we've all been very busy over the years. So I'd say maybe there's not as much project interaction mm-hmm. um, as there was when I first got here, when it was really just Keith and myself. But, um, you know, um, everybody gets along, and um, we used to play a lot of golf together, but we're not so much anymore. We have family. Bryce has got a younger family, but... Um, even our kids are, are older, but it's it's a good environment, and uh, I think everybody enjoys working here and working together. What have you learned from Reese over the years? I guess I had to ask that question, right? You're you're working with one of the most well known names in golf course architecture. How much passion does he have for it? And what do you learn from being around somebody like him for such a long time? I guess a couple of big things. I mean, Reese was really kind of born into this um, mm-hmm. into the game, obviously with his with his father. And I think, you know, Reese really decided to do this and got involved when it, when it was really a true craft. You know, mm-hmm. the um, golf course design was really a craft. The, the idea of, of making money or a lot of money um, hadn't really happened yet. You know, I, I think when tour professionals started designing golf courses, that's when the fees really got big. And that brought a whole different um, dimension to who wanted to be in golf course architecture. So, you know, he's been in it kind of, kind of before all that happened for really the love of the, of the profession. And he's obviously always been very passionate about the game. He's a, he's a real student of the history. Um, he understands it and cares about it. And I think he really cares about where golf is going and, and the future of the game. Um, I think the other big thing that I've learned from him is just servicing, you servicing the client Mm. and, um, I don't think anyone in this business will, will ever outwork us uh, or other, you know, otherwise um, service the client and, and make sure that you're doing as much as you possibly can to help them succeed, 
with whatever kind of project they have. So that, you know, I think that's why we've always kind of had this this um, low volume, hands on philosophy when it comes to how many projects we we take at a time. And that's because we feel like it's important to be on site and make adjustments uh, as the course is being built to make sure it really fits the land and and um, is the best that it can be. I guess the other thing is Reese. You know, Reese has always been a huge supporter of uh, ASGCA and is I think was instrumental kind of in its um, kind of its midlife. You know, his father was one of the founders, and Reese was a was a president years ago, and still is very involved in the society, cares about it, cares what's being done, uh, what the messaging is. And I think he's encouraged all of us to be members and be active members and participate, which takes time away from, from the business. But um, those things rub off on you over the years, just the passion for the game um, and the passion for servicing your clients. Greg, I think all of us at work in golf have had some of those, I can't believe I get to do this moments <laughs> over the years. Uh, I've seen the list of where you worked and what you've done. What have been some of those moments for you throughout the course of your career? Um, yeah, I guess it's kind of hard hard to pick because I do I have been pretty fortunate with the projects I've been involved with. I think certainly the work at the major championships has been and has been rewarding, and the the courses that have hosted PGA and LPGA tour events. It's it's always rewarding to see your work on television and have it. Um, have professionals respect that the work you've done and embrace it, um, which has has really been been the case at most of our uh, major championship work. I've also seen some really great pieces of property and been fortunate to work on on courses like that. I, you know, place like Hague Point comes to mind off on Defusky Island, Victory Ranch uh, course that we did probably 15 years ago outside Park City, just a wonderful site. Um, our course at Reynolds. Uh, Lake Oconee, um, wonderful course, great routing. I, I really enjoyed working there. And like we've, like I said before, we've worked on a lot of projects that are golf only, where the the whole focus is on the golf course, not not the surrounding real estate or the other amenities associated with the development, but just golf only. And and I've probably worked on eight or nine of those over the years uh, at a lot of different locations. So some of the overseas work I'm, I've done a little bit in China. Um, and I have actually, I have a new course in Brazil that's under construction right now. Um, it just got started. So that's a, kind of those experiences have been rewarding. And, and, you know, I've gotten to see a lot of the, of the world through this profession, which is, uh, which has been fun. But I think the biggest thing, I guess, is probably just the people that you meet and the relationships that you build over 30, 30 some years. And, um, not only with your architecture, um, colleagues, but, Every part of this industry, you know, the superintendents, the builders, um, the suppliers, everybody, it's, uh, it's really a, um, a great industry, and it's, it's been a lot of fun to be involved with those people. Greg, there are not a lot of uh, big golf course architecture firms left. What's the future like for the bigger firm like the one you work for? How do you see things uh, going over the next decade or two for um, the bigger companies in the industry? I guess I've always felt like we're kind of a mid-sized firm. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly in the heyday, we work as some other architects, you know, working all over the world and yeah. a lot of employees. But um, I don't know, maybe we are a big firm now. <laughs> maybe mid-sized has become big the way, way it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess 
based on history um, for any firm, but especially the big firm, it's like as, as long as there's plenty of work, they'll prosper, right? I mean, yeah. whether it's at home or away. Um, and and when things constrict, um, then there's going to be layoffs at, at those yeah. firms. So, um, you know, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of projects to, to fuel a big a big design company. But I think I think there will there will always be opportunities um, for companies of all different sizes. It's just a question of um, you know the, it's cyclical. You know, the economy, the global economy, the domestic economy, and especially the housing market. I think has a lot to do with how many new courses will be built. But I think the opportunities for renovation and some significant renovation will will always be present moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, and last thing here, because you're the first uh, Tartan Talks episode of two, 2023, let's hear what you think the, the year in golf course architecture and construction is going to be like. I think I'm really bullish on it right mm-hmm. now because I'm working on projects right now that are scheduled to be built in 2025. So we're already two, almost three years um, out with design work. And I have a lot of projects that will start in 23, um, 24. We've already, um, you know, myself, just my, speaking for myself only, I've probably got three or four right now that are scheduled for 24. So, uh, and builders, you know, if you, if you try to find a builder today, um, most of them are booked through 23 and half of 24. So all those indicators kind of lead me to believe that it's, it's going to be a busy, busy time here in the next four or five years. I mean, I guess something could happen that would change all that, but barring any of that, I think everybody in our business is very busy right now, architects and contractors. So it's, um, it's encouraging, um, makes you feel optimistic for the future. Well, that's great to hear. And busy, I always say, beats the alternative. So this was awesome that you took time out of your <laughs> busy schedule to join the podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you. This was a lot of fun. And congrats on everything you've achieved. And let's try to catch up again soon at some point. Well, I appreciate that. Again, thanks for the invitation. Um, I enjoyed it as well. I hope your listeners will enjoy it. 